morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Um, yes, my name is Abby Odio. I have been on staff at Bethany Greenlake now for several months. Um, my husband, Sam, and I, who's just here, uh, we moved up from California last summer. Um, I'm originally from Seattle, SPU class of 2009, so it's good to be back in God's country, yes. I tried to call out our mascot during the first service, and I literally forgot what it was. So go Falcons. I'll redeem myself this service. Um, And we have a one-year-old son. He's in a little plaid shirt. You might see him running around. Um, If he bites you or tries to pull you your hair, wrong guy, wrong kid, not our son. Another kid in a plaid shirt, but he's a a real joy. So uh, it's so good to be with you this morning. This is my first time at any other location on a Sunday morning besides Green Lake, and it's a real treat. We hear stories of just the faithfulness of this community. Um, And we're continuing in a series called Drawn to the Margins, where we're looking at this calling that we have to be a disciple of Christ, and how that calling parallels is really synonymous with a secondary calling, which is actually to be people who move out into our community, into our world, um, as agents of transformation and of hope. And those two things really go hand in hand, and that's what this series is sort of about. Now, how we become these uh, kinds of people, how we become uh, people who actually mirror and reflect the image of Christ to the world is a noble calling. It's really the most important question, I would argue, that we can attempt to ask with our lives. And yet we all know it's really difficult and challenging, that change is hard, that um, despite our best intentions, it often doesn't come easy. Um, I'm up here preaching a sermon this morning. About three hours ago, I was losing patience with my one-year-old son in the car, um, telling him that, no, he could not have another blueberry granola bar, that he'd already had two, that three was too many. Um, But we live in this tension, this world of like, man, I want to be a certain way. I want to be the mom that's patient with her kid and the person that's generous. And also, there's just reality that, that, um, change is hard and that we are human. And so part of what intrigues me about this story that we've read this morning from Luke 17 is that it offers us some steps as to how we pursue growth and actually live into that calling, how we become people who who change. And um, we're going to spend our time looking at sort of three sub-callings that are implicit in this story. Uh, I'll call them a calling to, to see like the men with leprosy, That's the first one. A calling to return like the Samaritan and a calling to assume a posture of gratitude like Christ. So to that end, I'm going to pray for us uh, this morning and then we'll we'll jump right in. Uh, Jesus, we're grateful that indeed those words we sang this morning are true, that uh, we are your children, that that is true of every single person in this room this morning, that there's nothing we can do or say to change that reality. And God, um, I pray that uh, you would encourage us this morning that as your children, you've called us into this rich and full and meaningful life whereby we are a blessing to the world. And to that end, uh, we desire to grow, we, we long to change, and we need your help in doing that. So we ask that your spirit would meet us here this morning as we pursue that end. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the first point that we're going to talk about this morning is this. We are called to see like the men with leprosy. What exactly does that mean? Let's take a step back for a moment. I just want to consider, some of you may know this, but the implications, um, both physically and theologically, uh, for a person living with this condition called leprosy in the first century Greco-Roman world. 
Um, on a clinical level, I know there's some nursing people here this morning. On a clinical level, leprosy is an infection where after a time, bacteria attacks a person's nerve endings. So what happens is they lose their ability to feel, uh, to feel anything really but pain especially. You can imagine the implications of such a disease on a person's well-being because while pain is uncomfortable, it's actually a helpful means of survival. Without pain, I can stick my hand in a boiling water without ever being aware that uh, my skin is burning. A cut, a small cut even, could easily turn into an infection or gangrene because I simply can't feel it. And so, folks, these 10 men living with this disease would carry with them the physical manifestation of its impact, right? They oftentimes were missing limbs. Um, certain forms of the disease would cause these uncomfortable tumors to grow. Certain uh, men in that day had, and women had skin rashes that would form. And so in Jesus' day, uh, it was wrongly understood that this disease was also highly contagious. We know now that it's called Hansen's disease. It's actually curable and not, conta- not as contagious as people once thought. But um, these people, because it was thought to be so contagious, they were stigmatized. They were avoided. They were marginalized, you could say. They lived uh, lonely lives in isolation. And on top of that, on top of just the, the physical pain of their condition... There were some theological and social implications that came with leprosy. For instance, in Leviticus 13, we read that a person with this disease would have to move about life, crying out to people, unclean, unclean, so that other Jewish folks would know to keep their distance. The Jewish Talmud lays out precise measurements of distance that a person with leprosy must keep from all other Israelites. They were said to, um, they must remain at least four cubits, which a cubit is the distance from the elbow to the fingertips. They had to remain four cubits away unless the eastern wind was blowing, in which case they had to remain a hundred cubits away. Don't ask me why. Apparently that eastern wind um, was really something. But the first uh, century historian Josephus, some of you will know that name, uh, he notes in his writings that there were many lepers living in that time And they simply weren't permitted within a city. They weren't permitted uh, to live in a home with other people. They they lived outside the gates of a town. Now, keeping all that in mind, there's a certain theme or parallel that commentators will often make, biblical commentators, in which God uses the physical condition of leprosy to teach us something about our own spiritual condition. Now, I want to be real careful here because... What I'm not saying is that leprosy was inflicted by God as a result of sin. That's not the connection. Nor are we trying to downplay the experience of suffering of people who have physical disabilities or illness. That's not it either. Rather, in a way, these folks became almost prophetic voices in that world for helping reflect something back to people about their actual internal spiritual condition. Um, Think for a moment about this idea that there is a God who longs for the world to be a certain way. Sometimes in the church, we'll call that the kingdom of God. And every moment I make a choice, um, and in making that choice, I either bring a little bit of that kingdom, or I don't. I make a choice and I, I make that kingdom less and less a reality for myself and for others around me. And because not one of us is perfect, there are ways every day in which I'm misaligned. I choose to behave in a way that moves me farther from God's effective will. We call that sin. And the reality of sin is that the ultimate output is always isolation, right? 
It's always separation from God, but also from people around us. That's what sin does. This is just a trite example, but last week my husband and I were texting about something that I knew was really important to me and I could perceive was probably not so important to Sam. And so I'm texting, texting, and he's sending me these simple one-word responses, like, yes, no, sure. Now, this is typical of my husband. He is a deeply caring man who also happens to be very efficient with words, sometimes much to my dismay. And I took his one-word answers to be a dismissal of something that I cared about. And instead of doing the adult thing and, like, verbalizing that and saying, look, you know, when you, when you don't engage with me, sometimes I question whether or not this matters to you and it, that's difficult for me. Instead of saying that, I took the super mature route and I simply ghosted him. In millennial speak, that means I chose not to respond to him for a few hours. It didn't work. He was clueless as to what was going on. But I I know this is a trivial example, but it illustrates this point, a small point in my day where I was faced with this moment where I could have gone one of two ways. I could have chosen love and deeper intimacy, or I could have chosen pride, which always leads to isolation, which always leads to breaking communal bonds. And I chose the latter. Like, you don't care, Sam? Watch, I don't care even more than you. And the result was separation where there could have been community. And what this, what, uh, this is what ultimately what sin does. It separates. It does this in small and significant ways, right? I let lust have its way in me. I continually commodify another person, and I move farther away from true connection, from real intimacy. I let my anger go unchecked without examining kind of the root of it, and I find myself one day with no real relationships with kids that don't want to have a relationship with me because my anger has pushed them away. It's distance, it's separation. I don't examine the effects of my own privilege and I move farther away from those who suffer as a result of the systematic evil that is racism. You see how that works. And part of why this condition of sin mirrors that of folks living with leprosy in the Bible is that the greatest threat uh, of sin is that we become so comfortable in patterns and beliefs and ways of navigating life that we're no longer able to see or feel the profound and destructive effects of our choices. They become habitual. They become part of our norm. In other words, metaphorically speaking, I can stick my hand in a pot of boiling water, something that is truly problematic and damaging for myself, and yet I have become so unaware and even comfortable with this pattern that I'm numb to its destructive effects. And so um, there's a great, actually, quote in the book The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, It gets at this idea. He writes this. He says, Good beats upon the damned incessantly, as sound waves beat on the ears of the deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes are fast shut. First they will not, and in the end they cannot open their hands for gifts or their mouth for food or their eyes to see. And friends, this is is sort of the risk that these patterns, they become permanent in us to the point where we're numb to them. And the first thing this story does is that it invites us to be like this group of men with leprosy. They're the prophets. Because though they're numbed by their condition, they have seen and identify their deep need. They know it's going to take someone outside of themselves to meet them in their pain, in the, in the areas where their growth has been stunted. So they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. And part of what is so difficult about this calling is that it requires us to actually take a critical look at our own life 
and our own story and look for blind spots, to actually identify areas of numbness, which by definition are difficult to identify. And this is part of where the gift of community becomes exactly that. It becomes a gift to have people in your life who will say, you know, when you do this, it causes these effects. And I've noticed that that's something that you tend to do. Husbands and wives can be great for that. Roommates can be great for that. So that's the first calling. We are called to uh, see like the lepers. The second calling is this. We're called to return like the Samaritan. If we uh, return to Luke 17, you'll notice Jesus is walking along the road between Galilee and Samaria. And this group of lepers, um, they follow the rules. They keep their distance and they call out, Jesus, have mercy on us. And this group gets one thing absolutely right. They know their need. They rely on Jesus. And Jesus issues this command. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. The priests were the ones who would have authority, likely the priests in Jerusalem, uh, to declare healing, to give a formerly ill person a green light to sort of re-enter society. So the priests' opinion, it mattered, right? It held weight in the community. Luke writes in verse 14, as they went, they were made clean. All ten men were granted the thing that they'd been hoping for. But then uh, in verse 15, we're told that one of the ten, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Now, that's interesting. Uh, In verse 14, Luke tells us they were made clean, and he uses a particular verb that implies the removal of impurities. That's what the Greek word actually means. It's where we get the English word catheter which is kind of an uncomfortable word to say. Uh, but um, that, it's the same concept, taking impurities from the body and removing them. And this sort of cleansing is a good thing. It's precisely the nature of the healing that the priests would have been looking for when they went to the temple. But notice how one of the lepers realizes that he's, he's been healed, and instead of obediently following Jesus' instructions to go to the priests, he turns around and praises Jesus, uh, goes back to Jesus, begins praising him and thanking him. The text says he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus responds essentially saying, where's everyone else? Like, weren't all of, all of you healed? And then he makes this really important statement. This is what I want to focus on. He says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, the verb used in this declaration is different than what we saw in verse 14. This verb comes from the root sozo, which uh, is often translated in scripture saved or made well or even made whole. The Greeks use this word to talk about people who escaped like deadly situations and were given new life. In verse 14, all 10 of the sick men are cleansed, but only the one who returns is made well. Now this is curious in a way because if you think about it, the nine men who didn't return to Jesus actually acted in obedience to his instructions. And yet it's the one who disobeyed, who didn't follow protocol, that receives the greatest of all gifts, which is this wholeness, this newness, this sozo. So what are we to make of that, is the question. That declaration of sozo is actually one we see elsewhere in the book of Luke. If we look at Luke chapter 7, There's a sinful woman, some of you will know the story, she breaks into a dinner party hosted by Pharisees, and against all social norms, she declares, um, she cleanses Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. She pours perfume on them. The Pharisees, the obedient people, they're appalled, and to make matters worse, Jesus turns this woman into an example and declares wholeness. Sozo, that's a word he uses, for you, 
Then again in Luke 8, another woman, sick. She's had terrible bleeding, and she breaks through the crowd. She touches Jesus. She defies the gender codes of appropriate conduct uh, by addressing him in public. And then tell, she tells him her whole story, just like lets it all out there for the world to hear. And much to the surprise of everyone watching, Jesus doesn't chastise her. He doesn't rebuke her. Instead, he says, sozo. He says, wholeness, fullness. I'm giving it to you. Now, notice in each of these stories, including the story about the man with leprosy who returns, the commonality is not actually obedience. Obedience is important, but that's not what draws them together. It's not an attempt to more faithfully follow the law. In fact, by any religious standard, each of these characters does the wrong and even religiously appalling thing. Think about that. The thing that saves each of them is this all-out, relentless pursuit to be near and to know the person of Jesus, to be near to him in their moment of need. Several years ago, I was living in Los Angeles, which I call the city of weeping and ganashing of teeth. I know that's not how you say it. That's the joke. Um, But this is God's country, so y'all just stay put. You're in the right part of the world. Um, But I was living in Los Angeles. Uh, I was attending this tiny church in East Hollywood, and we had a partnership with a transitional housing space in our neighborhood. And this home was set up for folks who were coming out of prison, many of whom were there because of drug addiction. And so it was like a six-month kind of place where they could go um, where temptation would be the highest to relapse into former habits. And so it was a, it was a sweet house. Um, and during our time kind of getting to know these folks, I met this woman named Anne. Anne was an Irish immigrant. Uh, she'd been in the U.S. for 20-plus years at the time that I met her. Um, she had a real thick accent and bright red hair. Like, she couldn't have been more Irish. Um, but Anne, uh, many, many years before I met her, had been in an accident where she was high on methamphetamine. She was driving her car. She actually ran over and killed a pedestrian. And a result of that, had spent many years in prison, had lost her children, um, still hadn't been in contact with them. Uh, when we knew one another. But I got to know Anne, and she worked at the home. She served as a mentor to the women coming through. And over time, she kind of became a mentor to me. Like once a month, uh, we lived real nearby. Uh, Her and I would connect, and we'd go for a walk. And so one day we were doing this, and I was sharing with Anne. um, At the time, I was working this part-time retail job, store named Anthropology, where everything costs more than you could ever possibly make by working there. And um, I was sharing with her that I wasn't spending my money in a way that I felt like reflected my values, and it was kind of this embarrassing, like, um, thing to admit. And she looked at me, and I'll never forget it. She said, Abby, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about uh, drugs and the way that they made me feel, which was so good. And then she said, the moment that thought enters my head, I drop to my knees, and I say, There is no greater gift in my life than knowing you, Jesus. She says, every time I'm tempted, I do that. Fast forward about two months. Anne and I are walking down the streets of L.A. together in our neighborhood, and we watch a drug deal happen, which wasn't an uncommon thing in that uh, part of the city. And something sparked for Anne, like temptation, whatever. And literally, she dropped to her knees there on the sidewalk, and she said that phrase, that prayer, there is no greater gift in my life than knowing you. Jesus. Now, I don't know why this shocked me. I suppose the first time she told me, I figured 
Like she metaphorically dropped to her knees and kind of said that prayer in her head. But I share that story because I think it so perfectly illustrates this this calling that we have to return to the person of Christ. Like, man, that one-time commitment, that one-time statement of belief in who Jesus is, it's so important. And we are made new. But God actually says to us, I want to I work something out in you. I want relationship with you. There's actually more than just being made clean. There's wholeness. There's fullness. There's this so-so thing that is so, so good and that you were created for. Keep coming back to me. Return to me. Like my friend Anne, the one man knew it was this relationship, this returning to Jesus, falling at his feet, that that was the source of fullness. And so he did it. She did it time and time again. And I love how at the end of the story, Jesus throws in this detail. He says, he was a Samaritan. In other words, he did not believe the right things this one who returned. He did not believe the right things. He did not live in the right theological paradigm. He did not even worship at the right temple. Yet when push came to shove, he knew the right person who was the source of life. And friends, let me tell you, this is a word for us today because it is so easy to do the right things and miss the person. I have to tell you, I, at the front of the line, can, man, that can be a temptation for me. In John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you. He's talking about God the Father, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This means that I'm called like the leper who recognizes uh, the pattern of separation and destruction, perhaps ones that I may have become numb to over time. I'm called to recognize that, and then I'm called to be like the Samaritan who realizes that it's not the condition of cleanliness as declared one time by the priest that will save him, but this relationship, this returning to God to be made full. And so, friends, as we are made aware of these behaviors and patterns and thoughts that are causing us to experience isolation from God and from others, it could be greed, it could be judgment, it could be lust for power, it could be unchecked consumerism like it was for me in that season, it could be image maintenance, I don't merely say, God, forgive me. I actually drop to my knees and I pray that prayer. There's no greater gift in my life than knowing you, Jesus. Fill this place in me. You don't literally have to drop to your knees, but maybe you want to. That's sozo. That's this ongoing invitation to fullness. And as we encounter our own areas of numbness, that's our invitation too. So the final calling in this story, the third and final calling is this, to embody gratitude like Christ. In our text from Luke, we're told the Samaritan returned to Jesus, dropped to his knees, and thanked him. Uh, The word for thank, some of you will be familiar with this, is eucharisto. That's the Greek word, and it's the word that we see in uh, in this story. And it's the same word Jesus used before he goes to the cross. When he sits with his disciples, he breaks the bread. And we're told he gives thanks. Eucharisto, that's the word. This is one of many times in the Gospels that Jesus actually assumes this posture where he thanks God the Father for something. And notice it's shortly after giving thanks and breaking the bread that Jesus goes to the cross. Now here's where I want to draw a connection for us. It's with this posture with great humility that he moves to the very utmost margins of the human experience. That he takes on himself pain and suffering and all the depravity of humankind. 
I'm reading a, a really interesting book right now called The Second Mountain, A Quest for the Moral Life. It's by a guy named David Brooks. Um, I'd highly recommend it. Brooks has both Christian and Jewish roots. And the book isn't written from an overtly Christian perspective, but it certainly has Christian values embedded in it. But in the book, he encourages readers to pray to God. And without going into too much detail about who that God is, he says, um, if it's not a practice you're familiar with, start with gratitude. And he writes this, the easiest prayers to say are prayers of thanksgiving for a meal or some other good thing. Even these easy prayers are good prayers because gratitude is the soil in which egotism tends not to grow. Gratitude is the soil in which egotism tends not to grow. Here's why I share that. Philippians 2 informs us that Jesus actually had no ego, probably and certainly the only person to live without such a thing. That he was fully here to do the will of the Father, to bring about God's kingdom, and he did that perfectly. And Jesus lived out that calling, not with entitlement, but dependency. A dependency that, like the Samaritan in Luke 17, expressed itself in gratitude. So you have Jesus living in dependency, kind of on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end, you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, unlike Jesus, lived with the sense that it was their own righteousness that got them where they were. And so by default, they looked at those suffering on the margins And wrongly assumed what? That it was their lack of righteousness that got them where they were. This is where we see the beauty of gratitude come through because it keeps me firmly planted in the truth that all of life is grace. That all of life is this gift that I receive from God. That my need for God and dependence on God is just as great as people who carry those needs more obviously. And it's that perspective that situates me in a place not to reach out to those in the margins with a handout or a lesson or a savior complex, but rather I step into these spaces, I move into these spaces, I'm drawn into these spaces because like you, God met me in the margins and I'm grateful and now I'm here. Now I, I show up. Last week, I, a good friend of mine, her son was in the pediatric ICU Friends, I have to tell you, I've never been in a more marginalized place. You don't know the number of single moms with multiple children sitting in there with very sick kids. Think about the the isolation of that experience. The loneliness of it. And it's actually gratitude that moves us there. Gratitude, this receptivity to what God has given me that draws us to see other people in need and show up. My husband Sam and I and our son, we live in an apartment um, downtown and uh, people ask where and I say, oh, Second and Pike, and they say, oh, you're actually downtown. And I say, yes, we are right there. Um, But as many of you know, uh, addiction and mental illness, they're a reality in our city And you can see that devastation in Ballard. I know that. You can see it certainly on the block where we live. But I was recently uh, out with um, a walk with our son at 5.30 in the morning. God bless him. He is a wonderful kid, a child of God, and he is a demon when it comes to sleep. Um, So we're out. It's super early. And uh, um, uh, we're going to Starbucks because there's 16 of them on our block and it's the only thing open. And we, uh, we're about to enter into the door, and I see this woman who's sitting there. And um, she's holding a sign asking for help. And 
um, as I move through the door, I think to myself, you know, there's some different ways I could go with this. I could just buy her a sandwich or I could go back out and have a conversation with her, ask her what sounds good. And then for some reason, I started to think about this particular conversation I'd had with a friend who was telling me that sometimes Seattle is referred to as free Seattle because of the number of handouts that are accessible to people who need them. And um, for some reason, that got me uh, thinking about her story and the choices that she may have made that landed her in front of the Seattle Starbucks at 5.30 with a sign like that. And they weren't positive thoughts. And by the time I got to the front to pay for my coffee, I'd somehow convinced myself that I should do nothing, that to help her would actually be enabling her situation, and that her predicament was somehow her own choosing, even though I felt bad. And I'm not proud to share this with you. It was a Pharisee moment. It was this moment where I had a mindset that was loaded with ego, right? That somehow I had gotten what I deserved and so had she. And so I leave Starbucks and I'm walking back home and I could feel God's spirit. It was one of those moments sort of nudging me with this simple truth, simply saying, Abby, the only thing you know about her, the only thing you know about her is that she's a child of God, an image bearer of God. And she's a person in need of Christ, just like you. And I thought that, like, the whole way walking home. Here's what gratitude does. It keeps us close to the truth about ourselves and about others, that truth, and then moves us into marginal spaces with Christ-like compassion. What we're doing here today, is called, we call it worship. We gather, right, in this space And essentially, the point of it is to express thanks to God for all he's done for us. It's a beautiful thing. If you look at texts like Amos 5 and Isaiah 1, God actually tells Israel he doesn't want their worship because he says they're not acting on behalf of those in the margin. He says, you're ignoring the widow and the orphan, the oppressed. And so God says, just stop. I don't want to hear it anymore. And the implication here is that our worship, our expression of gratitude to God, will always draw us deeper into the margins or we're missing it. It's a convicting thought. You could say the authenticity of our worship is seen in how we're actually drawn into these places as agents of transformation and hope. So as a church, I'd invite us just to reflect on one simple question this week. Where is our gratitude drawing us? Where is your gratitude, your worship, where is it drawing you? And I, I know as pastors, we can kind of ask hypothetical, rhetorical questions. Don't let this be one of those questions. Talk to your roommate about it. Talk to your family about it. If you're part of a small group, I'd encourage you, have a conversation about it. Ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance kind of in that conversation. As a result of my experience at Starbucks that morning, um, and just given the neighborhood we live in, I'm reading a book right now, about the growth um, of opioid addiction in America. I'm trying to understand that topic. And then together, my husband and I are just uh, researching some organizations in our neighborhood, literally on our block, that are there to assist folks who are in need. It's not a solution. It's not a starting point. But, but it's a step, right? It's a step. So what, what is your step? Where might gratitude take you this week? And in the next moments as we close together, the worship team will come on up. Um, I'm just going to have us, we've got one song. uh, And during that song, acknowledge your dependence on God. Be like the men with leprosy. Express gratitude. Be like the Samaritan that returns. 
And then open yourself up to where it is that God might lead you next, where it is that God might draw you as a result of our worship here today. So I'm going to pray to that end, and then we'll continue in worship together. Jesus, we indeed this morning thank you for that truth that you are a God who uh, was drawn to the margins, that you became one of us, that you saw a people in need and moved by compassion. You actually met us in the flesh and blood. God, we are so grateful for that truth this morning. We need a Savior and we are grateful that you are him. God, I pray that um, we wouldn't just stop there, that we wouldn't just uh, receive that into our story without actually being moved to change. God, I ask that in these next moments that, and this week that you would meet us, that you would compel us, that you would um, touch our hearts in such a way that we would uh, care on behalf of the other. Not because we're anything more or less than human, because we're a child of God and and so are the people of this world that you so love. So turn our attention, turn our hearts to where there is need and help us to be people who respond, who go the same way that you came. We're grateful for you and to be your children. We pray these things in your name. Amen.